Please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 56. As we are going to be looking at Isaiah 56 verse 9. And we're going to be reading through 57.13 today. Isaiah 56 verse 9 and reading through 57.13. Again, before we go to his word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us because, <clears throat> I think for me anyway, sometimes this your word can become a simple academic exercise in just trying to figure out what it says like I was solving some puzzle. And so Lord, help us to see that these, these words aren't for our academic training, but these are the words of life. These are the words that change us from the inside out. These are the words that speak of a great God and the great thing that he did for a not-so-great people. And so, Lord, help us to be changed by your word. Convict us of our sin. Lead us to the truth. I pray this in your holy name. Amen. So last week, Monday and Tuesday of last week, Todd and I went to Presbytery. Uh, that's where we have a lot of area churches, and we all meet together on matters concerning all the churches, and we do this twice a year for us to, to meet, and we have churches that are as far north as like north of St. Louis, and we have people almost on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi, and we have people in western Arkansas, and we have people in Louisville. So that's a pretty big area. We have about 26 churches in this presbytery, and again, we meet together to kind of decide some of the business. And for both of us, <clears throat> there were some sober reminders there. Many of our churches are dying, and what I mean by that is they're just really small. They don't have a lot of folks in them, and the folks that they have are physically leaving this earth, and they are... Um, and they just don't have a pastor or any leadership there. And um, a few of those churches are even among some of the first ARP churches this side of the Appalachian Mountains. Some really old churches, like almost 200-year-old churches. And if you were to go back 50 years and to take a snapshot of these churches, 50, 60, 70 years or so, you'd see a much different picture of some of these churches. And you'd see kids running around and playing. You see big groups of folks standing around, enjoying one another's company, having food together after the service and so forth, much like we do here. You would see these sorts of wonderful things that you'd look at and you'd say, wow, that's a healthy church. And now as you go into their congregations are dwindling into the single digits. Some of these churches haven't had a pastor in 10 plus years at them. And so there's a lot of sadness there associated with these churches, partly because you think of what was many years ago, right? You think of the quote-unquote good old days. And then a part of it for me is also thinking about our own church who hasn't been together very long at all and what we might be one day. Because we can't know the future, but we do know that things don't last forever. Even really good things don't last forever. 
And so as we get into our passage today, we see the really good things of last week kind of coming to a halt. Um, And we're moving into a difficult time for the people of God. And not because times are difficult for them, but because the Lord is reminding them of how difficult they are. We know that this, again, this post-exilic Israel that is currently in dealing, that that Isaiah is writing about, uh, dealt with these difficulties, just as we are going to see that we deal with these same difficulties today. There are various reasons for each one of them. And so for us as a church, we need to be vigilant. We need to be humble also because when we hear messages like the one that we're going to hear today and like the what we're going to read from the prophet today, it's really easy to look around the room or to look around town even as we are so often want to do and think, man, they really need to hear this message. But it's us, Redeemer who needs to hear this message from Isaiah 56 and 57 today. As we come to God's word, let us see it as a reflection of our own tendencies, of our own sinfulness, and, of course, the hope that we have in all those things, and it's our Savior Jesus. And so as we do this, we're going to consider three main ideas from the text, the silent dogs, the sons of the sorceress, and the people of peace. So with that, let's look together at the text. Isaiah 56, starting at verse 9, and we'll read through 57, 13. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 56, starting at verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion, they they are your lot, to them they have poured out a drink offering, you have brought a grain offering, shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed and have gone up to it. You have made it wide, and you have made a covering for yourself with them. You have loved their bed and looked on nakedness. 
You journeyed to the king of, with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, so that you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied and did not remember me? Did not lay it to heart. I Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When, I, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> so a lot here today. Remember last week we looked at this post-exile community coming home, setting up a kind of charter, this idea of keeping justice and doing righteousness. And for any organization to succeed and to move toward its goals, it has to have good leadership. Right? It has to set these things before the people. We're going to keep justice. We're going to do righteousness. These things have to be before the people. The people have to be 100% on board with those goals for that organization in order for it to succeed. And so for Israel, they're going to struggle with this. While they have some of these requirements, of course Israel had some good leaders. They also had their share of bad leaders. And they also had their share of just idolatrous people to boot. There were many false prophets who would lead the people astray, both in Isaiah's day and the ones that he would prophesy that were going to come, prophesy about that would come later. There are those who would partake in the many fertility cults of the surrounding nations. You see that in a lot of the language in 57. But you also see a picture of a faithful remnant. And that is very important. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate faithful remnant. When the Bible, is particularly when the Old Testament talks about the remnant of God, it's ultimately only talking about one person who was righteous. The rest of us fell way short. The only one who was ever truly faithful to God is Jesus our Lord. But there is still much for us to learn today as we navigate a changing culture and not just at large as we look at the world, but also in the church. One of my brothers in the Presbytery, a dear friend of mine, pastor of another church, said that he felt that the church was soon going to be experiencing what he said, a winnowing. And I really loved his use of that word. Because in the coming years, and not because the world's coming to an end or anything, but just because this is the natural way of things, in the coming years, it's going to be difficult to keep the faith. Just read, just watch the news. Just read the newspaper. In the coming years, it's going to be difficult. People who worship Jesus according to his word are going to become more and more few. And so we have to be careful to do the things that we are commanded of us. The text today gives us some real help with understanding our own tendencies toward the opposite. And so that brings me to the first point. The silent dogs. Look with me again at verses 9 and 10 of 56. All you beasts of the field, come 
and devour all you beasts of the forest. His watchmen are blind. They are without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. Vivid picture here that he is painting for us. Remember, we've largely, since chapter 52, really, we've kind of been having a good time of things, right? Everything's been nice. We've heard about our Redeemer. We've heard about this feast in heaven. We've heard about the charter that we need to, to live as a covenant community. And now, all of a sudden, we have these very difficult words before us in verse 9. They're very difficult because what is the Lord seemingly doing? All you beasts of the field come and devour it seems really strange that in just a few verses ago he was setting a banquet before his people and now he is sicking dogs on them. Why? Well, he's doing this to show the futility of their leadership. As the beasts of the field come to devour the people, notice what the watchmen are doing. Those who should be taking care of the people those who should be on the walls looking out, making sure everything is safe, they are nowhere to be found. Well, they can be found. They're found asleep, doing nothing. The Lord calls them silent dogs, which is an insult in the ancient Near Eastern world. To call anything a dog is to call something about as low as it gets. Very, very low thing. Dogs were unclean animals. They were really only the things that came up and ate trash. We see dogs a lot differently in our own culture today. But back then, in that culture, they were considered the lowest of the low. And so here, this is what the watchmen are being called, silent dogs. He's comparing the leadership of the people of God to blind, dumb, mute dogs who sleep all day. And he goes on in verses 11 and 12. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds. This is where he equates them to the leaders. They are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say. Let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. And tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure, they say, as the beasts of the field are storming the people that they are given watch over. These dogs can't do much, but they can feed themselves and get drunk. They can do that. They even see what's going on as a great thing. God spends some time dealing with false teachers all throughout his word. He does this in Ezekiel. One of the, uh, one of the places that really sticks out to me in the scriptures is Ezekiel chapter 34. If you want to turn there with quickly with me, just to show you the seriousness from which God takes his, the leaders of his people. And I want you to notice as I'm reading, we'll read these first ten verses, notice the first part. It reads very similar to what we were looking at. Isaiah 34, first ten verses. If you remember, Isaiah, Isaiah or Ezekiel was doing ministry during the exile, and so he was very aware of the futility of the leaders of Israel. It says this, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy, and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, all the shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? 
You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered, because there is no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over the mountains and over every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, and none to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my sheep have become a prey, and my sheep have become food for the wild beasts since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord your God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding of the sheep, or to, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall my shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. Pretty incredible. And notice that last part, the judgment on the leaders. What does God say to these leaders? He says, I, the Lord God, the Creator, who created all things merely with His words, He says, I am against the shepherds. This is a hard word against the leadership of God's people. God doesn't take the mistreatment of His people very lightly. People who are in leadership in the church should definitely heed these words because they should cause us to closely examine ourselves. And that said, whether you are a leader in the church or not, there are responsibilities that you probably have that are very similar to that, where it may be being a parent or something along those lines. Consider your own work as one who watches the walls in your own context for the beasts that would come in and destroy. Again, as a leader in the church, could be in your own home. Maybe you're sitting here and you're like, I'm not even close to that position yet, but probably one day you will be. It wasn't very long ago that I was sitting there thinking the same sort of thing, that I couldn't even imagine myself as a leader in the church or anything at all for that matter. And here it is. The major problem throughout the church and throughout history is that this, the leadership would stop taking care of the flock and start looking to take care of themselves. And how does this happen? How can you first see this? You first see this when they begin to lift up their own name rather than the name of Jesus Christ. When the name of the shepherd is lifted higher than the name of their Savior, that's a problem. Just listen to their stories. Just listen to the stories of the ones who preach, of the ones who have preached throughout history, even ones who just talk. Who's the hero? Who's the villain? Typically they are the hero of their stories. People that they consider less of it than them, which are most people, are the villains. They get a following for themselves, yet they lead no one. And they only take, and it only takes any, it only takes one like this, or one like this, one like this leader, to take a once thriving congregation and take them into nothing. 
When it comes to the church, brothers and sisters in Christ, there is only one hero, and it's Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for his people. There's no other heroes in the church. There shouldn't be any celebrities but Jesus either. We should only worship one, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And while the primary adversaries in this Christian life, sin and death, have been defeated, there are still those who masquerade on their behalf. And Satan's greatest tool against the church is the silent dogs who sleep while the beasts invade, seeking only prestige for themselves. So church, brothers and sisters in Christ, be on guard against false teachers and false shepherds. Hold your shepherds accountable to this. Because, trust me, they aren't perfect. Be on guard in your homes. And if you aren't in a place of leadership yet, pray that God will prepare you for the time that you are. And that brings me to the next point, the sons of the sorceress. We'll come back to verses 1 and 2 in a moment of 57. I want to look quickly at verses 3 through 5. But you... Draw near. He's drawing, a, he's drawing a comparison between the people of righteousness, which we'll talk about in a moment, and these who he calls the sons of the sorceress. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer, and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, who... You who burn with lust among the oaks, among every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, among the clefts of the rocks. These open these these verses kind of open up with this idea of paganism and idolatry on the part of Israel. And really, if you just continue to read throughout verses nine and even into ten, these are lots of weird symbols there. You know, it's talking about sacrificing their children under the cleft of the rock and smooth stones and green trees and all these sorts of things. And I'm as lost as the next commentator is, and they're pretty much supposedly ideas and symbols of this sort of paganism that these sons of the sorcerer are uh, involving themselves in. This points to Israel's idolatrous past, of course, and it's going to point to the idolatry they're going to be mixing themselves up in in the future, and really it points to our own idolatry as well. Israel allowed other nations to seep into their own thought and into their own religious practices, and this not only watered down their concept of the truth, but it also damaged their relationship with the one true God. We've seen that all throughout the book of Isaiah. It is all over the place in other prophets' work as well. I think the most telling verse of this kind of damage to the relationship is found in verse 10. Notice what's happening here in verse 10. So you see this picture of these people and these pagan practices that are listed there before, and these people that have done all these things, and it says, verse 10, you were wearied with the length of your way, which is really normal for anybody who was born to deal with this, to go through life and find some difficulty, but you did not say, it is hopeless. For you found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Now, it may seem like this is good, right? No, no, it's not, because they did this in the context of their paganism. Rather than denounce their idolatry and their pagan gods, 
They embrace them. When they look at them and when they're having difficulty along their way, they see their pagan gods as giving them new life and strength. They saw them as giving the endurance to carry on. Rather than looking at their gods and saying, this is hopeless, they didn't think that at all. They looked at them and they found hope in their pagan religion and their idols. This is a perfect picture of the church today. And please, again, don't hear me saying this is a perfect picture of other churches that aren't Redeemer. Because with pride comes the fall. We have to be careful when it comes to this kind of warning in Scripture because it's really easy to look at this warning and apply it to other people. We all love to do that sort of thing. We love to look around at others and think, nice, we've got it made. We are doing things so much better than these other churches are, these other Christians are. We have all the right answers. Obviously, by default, of course, they have the wrong ones. And then we just have pictured ourselves as being this great thing, yet all throughout Scripture, we would be warned to do the opposite. The Apostle Paul warns us very differently. In his warning against idolatry to the Corinthian church, Paul has a caveat for those churches who look around and think, Wow, we're really doing great. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Uh, I got the right Corinthians this time. It happens every once in a while. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is giving a warning against idolatry. And what he's doing is he's kind of giving some examples that happen all throughout the Exodus of the people leaving Egypt and going into the promised land and the idolatry that they had. And he's giving them a warning against their idolatry. The people in the New Testament, he's giving a warning against their own idolatry. And look what he says in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 10. He says, now these things, these things being those things that the people of God had dealt with in idolatry in the wilderness, now these things happened to them as an example but they were written down for our, our being the church in his day, the church in our day, for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure. We love that verse 13, but we really skip over verse 12. Because we like to think that we stand when it comes to the difficulties in this life and the difficulties that churches face. Throughout history, churches have come and gone. Good churches have come and gone. Sometimes this is the normal life cycle of a church. The Lord wills that a particular congregation will close its doors after a long, full life. But at other times, the life of the church is cut off because of the idolatry of the leadership and the people within the church. And it usually begins because they look around and think, we finally arrived. We couldn't be doing this any better than we're doing it now. Paul's warning here is, Anyone thinks, if anyone who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. We just got through, just got through singing. What do we stand upon? 
Do we stand upon our own goodness? Do we stand upon our own ability to compare ourselves to others and think, hmm, I'm doing pretty good? No, we stand upon His merit, Christ alone. If we stand on anything else, what are we going to do? We're going to fall. Like the one who built his house on the sand will fall. We have to be careful, brothers and sisters in Christ, just like Israel, chosen from among the peoples of the world, delivered by the hand of God multiple times throughout history, yet still wandered off into false gods, and looked at those gods, and said, In you I have hope. It's not often that the Christian church would adopt a false god and, and put it in the place of the one true God. That doesn't happen very often, frankly. But it is quite often that they would invite one in and let it stand beside the one true God. And we do this any time we allow the world to influence the way that we worship or we think. We do this any time we allow the world to change the way that we look at Scripture. And any time we look at God's Word and we, or we look at God and we say... This needs some changes in order for me to accept it. We have a problem. And it always starts really small. It's never really a blunt thing that offends everybody. It's always something really small that we can say, yeah, I guess so. We'll let that one slide. And the hope that we have in that 1 Corinthians passage in verse 13 that's often quoted by the church, that God will provide a way out of that temptation, that is a good hope that we have. But understand, this doesn't excuse our sin. It helps us with our temptation, sure. But we have to understand, brothers and sisters in Christ, it is not by our cunning that we escape temptation. I really figured that one out. It's because we have a great Savior who's working in us and who has worked for us. And that brings us to the last point, the people of peace. Look with me at verses 1 and 2 back in Isaiah 57. Admittedly, I struggled a bit with this, these verses. The idea of a righteous man being taken away. Struggled with this quite a bit. Then I realized that for some among God's people, they are taken into glory without a lot of difficulty. And for them, they kind of enter into this peace. With all the things going on around them, they are removed, able to experience peace, of course, which is a good thing. As I think about believing friends that I've lost and who are now with Jesus, I consider these verses. But what about for those of us who are still here, who risk being a bad leader, or being led by bad leaders, or both, or who fall into temptation? or at best, have to fight against it every single day. What hope do we have? Well, of course, we have the same hope that they had. We have the same hope that we've always had. It's not in just being a little bit better than I was yesterday. It's in clinging to the one who can't get any better. And that's our Lord Jesus. We cling to him. Look with me at verses 11 through 13 of Isaiah 57. Whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied, and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time, and you who do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off, a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me 
shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. I love the question that he asks, this rhetorical question in verse 11. Who did you dread and who did you fear? You feared the idols. You feared man. You feared what they might think about you. You feared what they might do to you. Which is a silly thing because these are all created things. I say this a lot, and you've heard me say this, but false gods don't bring us any comfort. They only punish. They only can only ever punish. There's only one God that brings comfort, and that's the one true God. And of course, the fear of man never rewards us. It's not as if I think, I'm so glad I was so concerned about what other people thought about me. That has done so much for my life. No one's ever going to say that. It only wants more. The search for approval only gets worse. It only deepens. And yet these are the things that we turn to. We turn to false gods who only punish. We fear man who doesn't, who's never going to like us. And we have a God who in Christ Jesus only ever comforts and only ever accepts us. Brothers and sisters in Christ... Turn from this. Repent. Turn to Jesus. He reminds us of what we have in him there at the end of verse 13. But he who takes refuge. Imagine just everything that we've read. We've read about these terrible leaders. We've read about all the terrible practices that they've done. The fact that they've looked at false gods and says, I hope in you. All these things. And right here at the end, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain and be made a part of his inheritance. If we take refuge in him, we shall possess the land. We shall share in his inheritance. And that shouldn't make sense to us. We shouldn't think, yeah, that feels about right. It doesn't feel right because we don't deserve it because we are the sleeping dogs. We're the sons and daughters of the sorceress. Yet he calls us in. He calls us and he makes us sons and daughters of the king because he is good. That's it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, turn from this. Turn to Jesus. Find find refuge and comfort in him. Find peace in him. He can give you rest. And if you're here and you're not a believer this morning, the scripture here presents you with a line in the sand. If you continue to be in the world, if you continue to have your deeds assessed according to their own merit. What does he say about your deeds? You're not going to profit from them. You're not going to gain anything from them. Instead, your deeds are going to earn you eternal damnation. Instead, call upon Jesus. His deeds have been assessed and they are found righteous. And he will give you his righteousness. In fact, he became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. Call upon his name and be saved. In conclusion, Christians, we have no other hope besides Jesus. He is the hope for the church today and always. We will only find true peace in him. Let us turn from our wickedness and turn again to Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that you would help us. We know the truth of the gospel. I know the truth. I can sit up here and I can say the gospel, but yet I will go from here and not believe it. And so, Lord, help us. We believe. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.